Hello, 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 and welcome back to the IBS Freedom Podcast. We are joined by the wonderful and talented Amy, of course, but also a friend of mine. Welcome, Michael. We are talking about colon cancer with Michael Robinson today. So my friend Michael here is a naturopathic doctor, and he specializes in naturopathic oncology. So this is why I, as soon as I thought to do this episode, he was my guy. I was like, we've got to have him on. He is a not only a naturopathic doctor, so he has his doctorate in naturopathic medicine. He is also a certified nutrition specialist, and he is certified in functional medicine and oncology nutrition. So I am so, so excited to talk to you about colon cancer. And oh my goodness, where do we begin? Oh, and before I forget, his website, if you guys want to creep on him or become a patient or work with him or his clinic is nourishhealthcare.org. And you can find him on Instagram as well at nourishhealthcare. So without further ado, Michael, take it away. I would love to learn more about colon cancer since it is Colon Cancer Awareness Month. Yep. So yes, I'm a naturopathic oncologist and basically kind of what I do is patients oftentimes come to me wanting to, you know, not do conventional medicine for their cancer. And then it's really my job to say, well, conventional medicine, oftentimes, you know, we need to use that medicine and we're talking about advanced disease, but there's so, so, so much more that we can do on top of that. So from my perspective, I want to talk to you guys about is, yes, we need to keep our conventional oncologists informed, but also it's like, what can we do on top of that? Um, colon cancer is kind of a big deal because it's the third leading cancer in the United States in both men and women. Um, and really, it's one of those guys that, especially when we're talking about nutrition, it it's your colon, it's your digestive system. It has this direct link. It's one of those cancers that's, yes, there is very, very, very hard evidence on what you eat is a very strong relation to, you know, you getting colon cancer. We have tons and tons and tons of data on that. And that's the good thing about, um, we're talking about natural cancer approaches is that there's a billion things on there on the internet that, you know, cure cancer, right? But there's, there's also literally thousands of articles about natural things that we know from an evidence-based perspective that can be used in colon cancer. So the fact that it is such a common cancer, it's not good for the patient's perspective and people getting cancer, but it's good for our perspective because we know how to treat it fairly well, right? So um, where do you guys want to start off talking about? Um, I think it would, I would say... Talking a little bit about um, prevention would be great. I know you were saying like there's a lot you can do to prevent colon cancer from becoming a thing. And then we could kind of get into, okay, if colon cancer is in, in the cards, what kind of strategies? But I think talking about prevention is really key. And I do really want to point out, I, I like that you're taking more of a complementary type approach or an integrative approach. Um I feel like as much as we always want to do things naturally, we see that a lot with our clients. You know, you don't want to shut down conventional treatments that could be really helpful too. So I just wanted to throw that out there. But if you can give us like, what are the key preventative measures that you can take for colon cancer? That'd be great. Of course. Yeah. Honestly, the biggest thing is screening. And that sounds, you know, sometimes silly and not like a full answer. But the thing with colon cancer is that if you find it early, it is an incredibly high success rate. So if you find a stage one cancer, or even if we're talking about a cancer less than three centimeters, it has over 90%, you know, survival rates and chance that you're going to beat it, chance that you're still going to be alive in five and 10 years. That's always a thing in cancer. We talk about five year survival rates and you know, people say, like, you know, I care more. <laughs> what about after five years, right? Well, colon cancer, we have data on at least up to 10 years, so that's something. Um, but it's really because research stops there. 
But screening is going to be the number one thing because if you can find it early, there's over a 90% chance that you're going to beat it and everything is going to be just fine. And for a cancer that is so, so common, it's just if we look for it, then we can find it early, then we can take care of it. And that's the thing is the large majority of people that get an advanced cancer diagnosis, they just weren't doing their regular old screenings. They weren't getting their colonoscopies. Um, so really in this country, you know, we have two kind of main options for screening. It's colonoscopy and it's the FIT test. So the fecal immunochemistry test, it's a Cologuard is, you know, the brand name one that people are familiar with, right? But it's the, you poop in a tray and you send it off in the mail and somebody tells you if you have some of these DNA changes that are, you know, related to colon cancer. It's not perfect. It's not technically as good as, you know, a colonoscopy, but for a lot of people out there, you know, I'm not advocating this, but there's a lot of people out there that just say, there's no way in the world I would ever get a colonoscopy. I don't care. I'm just not going through the procedure. It's like, well, you know, it's, the FIT test is like a 90% accuracy rate. It's, you know, it's certainly better than nothing, right? Um, non-invasive, you get to do it in your home, those sort of scenarios, okay? Um, actually, and, and a lot of things have changed coming out of COVID um, because I don't know if you guys have seen this and experienced this, but especially when COVID first hit, the medical world kind of shut down with a lot of their preventive screenings. They said, well, you know, you don't have colon cancer. We're just, you know, making sure, you know, we're screening you. You can put your colonoscopy off for six months. And then that has now turned into a couple of years that people are getting pushed back on that. Right. Um, so a lot of the screenings have changed and that's what the doctors were doing is they were first saying like, well, instead of the colonoscopies, it's just, let's just get everyone doing a fit test. So we're at least doing something right. Yeah. Um, so that was a change. And then when you look at the U.S. Preventative Task Force, the, the organization that does make these different recommendations on when we should do our screenings and things like that, actually, I think it was 2021, like very recently, maybe late 2020, they did update their colon cancer recommendations. It used to be at 50 was when we were start supposed to start screening people that were of average risk, and they've now lowered it down to 45 um they and they they even cite some of the the covid pandemic delays in screening as some of that reasoning okay so 45 is the new age for average risk if you do have a family history then we're looking at um it, it depends on how you know big your family history is but they might start at 35 they might even start at 30 depending on you know how many people in your family have it and there's, of course, other diseases out there. If you have Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, those inflammatory bowel diseases, you're at a higher risk for it. So same thing. They're going to say, well, start screening at 35 instead of start screening at 45. Okay. Yeah. But screening is definitely the best way. Um, other preventive things, it's like we mentioned, food. You know, food is going to be a major thing. And colon cancer is one of those guys that we have a massive amount of research on. So this is where we definitely know that very, very high fat diets are not good for colon cancer, right? And especially I'm not saying that, oh, we know that carnivore diets are causing colon cancer. What I'm saying is that the standard American diets that are full of fried chicken and French fries, those sort of things are, you know, we definitely know there's a high association. Um, high fat diets, low fiber diets is going to be one of the biggest things. And fiber is like you know, one of the number one deficiencies in terms of people's diets in America. So that's it. Alcohol, um, of course, alcohol is going to be a big association. There's a, uh, it's a little trickiness to it. It's basically baseline alcohol consumption is if you have one drink per day as a female or two drinks per day as a male, um, it's actually protective. It actually reduces your risk. The problem is, is if you go above that. So if a female has two drinks or a male has three drinks, it skyrockets. The risk gets really, really, really bad. So actually a little bit is slightly protective. 
a lot is very, 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 very bad. And oftentimes, again, in America, people are bad about overdoing things, right? Um, so fat, fiber, alcohol, and then um, we have a number of research on various different phytonutrients. So we know vitamin C is good. We know folate is good in food. So like eating spinach, not folate supplements, but eating spinach and folate-rich foods is good. And we definitely know calcium-rich diets are good. Over 1,200 milligrams of calcium per day reduces by like 10%. You know, it's a fairly large number in cancer. So there's a lot we can do. Yeah. It is, right. Um, but it's one of those guys that they've, they've looked at it, you know, 15 times over and there is a very, very clear association with calcium. Yeah. So that was a lot. Now, what about, gonna... what about the, I think this will be the most controversial, at least for people who have ever done like keto or carnivore or paleo. What about the red meat? Like, so that everyone always wants to focus on the red meat and that's where, you know, of course, conventional medicine loves to kind of yell at blame red meat for everything, right? Oftentimes it's not the red meat itself. It's what we do to the red meat, right? So it's when we char our red meat, when we're making those reactive oxygen species on, you know, or getting the blackened hamburgers and searing our steaks and those sort of scenarios are really where all the association is. So. Um, if we were talking general diet rules, like for colon cancer, definitely Mediterranean diet is the most evidence-based diet for sure, right? Um, and if you're familiar with the Mediterranean diet, you know, food pyramid, there is red meat on there. It's just at the top of the pyramid saying like, you know, just don't live on red meat. You can eat it sparingly, yeah. right? But it's, it's mostly about how we cook it and how we eat it in this country because it's, you know, McDonald's hockey puck sort of things where everything is just charred to a crisp. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I saw something a couple years back, too, that what we're eating with the red meat probably influences it, too. We're like, if you're eating the red meat with a bun and some fries and, like, one little sad piece of iceberg lettuce, probably more cancer-forming versus if you're eating, like, some steak with some broccoli and a big salad and maybe, you know, some whole grain rice or something that actually has fiber and color in it, then that seems to cancel out some of the nasties in the red meat, potentially, if you're eating it with something yeah. good. Yeah, it, it certainly does. And, you know, I'm not going to say that I've never eaten a hot dog in the last 20 years or anything like that. But it's just, you know, if I'm going to go 4th of July and grill up some hot dogs or something, I'm going to go and have some blueberries with it at the same time. So I can have those antioxidants to try to cancel out the little bit of bad that I'm going to be you know, eating. Of course, now I'm picturing you literally eating like a hot dog with the bun <laughs> with sad. blueberries on top. And it's making me want to vomit just a little bit. So I hope and pray to God you eat it on the side definitely. at the same then meal and not on top of the hot dog. If anybody wants to try that, um, tag us on Instagram. If you try this, maybe it's delectable and we just don't know. Tag Blueberry us. Hot dogs. We're going to start a trend. Yeah. Trendsetters here on the IBS Freedom Podcast, damn it. But yes, but, red uh, meat is, is one of those guys that everyone likes to focus on. And exactly like you said, it's oftentimes when we think about red meat in America, it's how do people eat it? You know, it's steak and potatoes or, you know, hamburgers with bread and everything like that, where when you have all that other food, it's taking the space of you eating your fruits and vegetables, which we know, again, are incredibly, incredibly, you know, protective. And that's where, you know, we can go on and on and on. There's, you know, we know that tomatoes have lycopene in them. We know there's a very good association with increased lycopene, decreasing our risk of cancer. Like it can go on and on and on. And honestly, there's probably 50 different phytochemicals that we know about reduce our risk. But that's where I say is the average consumer is not supposed to have to go out and memorize 50 different phytochemicals. It's just say, eat the rainbow, you know, eating some, a variety yeah. of food. Well, it kind of makes me think of the Michael Pollan bit where he talks about, we don't know what's deep inside the soul of a carrot. Like, just eat the carrot because it's a carrot. Don't overthink it. Don't 
you know, don't try to boil it down into all these little parts and all of these little chemicals that we feel like we need to know about, when in actuality, the carrot is still going to be healthy because it's carrot. Yeah. No, I, I say that every day. You know, I, I teach nutrition at a couple of universities too. And I tell my students that every day is like, literally, you can name any food that you want. And I can tell you something wrong with it. You know, kale has arsenic in it or, you know, whatever it is. Right. And it's every food could have a possibility of a problem, a problem with it. And that doesn't mean that you just shouldn't eat anything. Right. It's, you have to. Yeah. You have to have some give in there, right? And doing the best that you can is what counts because guess what? We're talking about cancer. Stressing yourself out is going to, you know, be worse for cancer more than anything else. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, that's a good point, too. What about quote unquote lifestyle stuff that's associated with a higher risk of colorectal cancer? Do we know if, you know, certain amounts or certain types of exercise or um, things like insomnia or poor sleep are, are going to be associated? I assume smoking is. Right, because smoking seems to be associated with most cancers to some degree. Yep, smoking definitely is, um, and yes, it's it's almost every cancer we have some increased risk with smoking. Um, the exercise they haven't looked at it as in depthly. You know, basically the studies, as far as I know, most of them just say that like we know that a sedentary lifestyle is not good, but they are. In certain, you know, breast cancer, they're like, well, you know, if you do this many minutes on a trampoline, it reduces your risk of breast cancer, right? For colon cancer, they don't get into that sort of specifics all the time. It's usually just preventing a sedentary lifestyle, which when you're talking research purposes and government, you know, recommendation purposes, that means less than 150 minutes a week per exercise is what they consider sedentary, where the average person should be getting more than 150 minutes for general prevention. And if we're talking about treating disease, then we're talking over 300 minutes per week, right? So 30 minutes. It's five times a day is kind of the general recommendation that we for sure definitely know. Um, we certainly know about other things. Like I said, is there is a very good family history risk. There's mm-hmm. colorectal cancer is there's many different subtypes, right? And there's definitely the most common types. And that's what I'm trying to mostly talk about. But um, there are these familial polyposis cancers where, you know, everyone in your family happens to get polyps in their colon and then, hey, some of those polyps can turn into cancer, right? Mm-hmm. So Definitely, definitely family risk, um, but usually the family risk sets you up for the less common types of colon cancer, right? So I say that to make sure it's clear to everybody that just because no one else in your family had, hasn't had colon cancer does not mean at all that you're not going to get colon cancer, right? Yeah. Um, there's also clear risks with history of breast cancer and endometrial cancer. So people don't realize that and you don't hear about it as much as you probably should. But once you have one cancer, your risk of getting another cancer goes up drastically. So uh, breast cancer and endometrial cancer are um, linked, very closely linked. Mm-hmm. And we think that's because, and this is, you know, could open up another can of worms and wider conversation, there is a large association with hormonal issues and colorectal cancer. Um, colorectal cancers do definitely have hormone receptors on them. And it's, you know, it's well known, established or acknowledged by conventional medicine. Um, really the note, the thing with it is as though a hundred percent of the cells aren't saturated with estrogen receptors like they are often in breast cancer, meaning in breast cancer, I can put you on hormone blockers and, oh, we think that the cancer is going to get smaller. If they were to try to do that in colon cancer, the colon cancer isn't hormonally driven enough that that treatment is going to save people, right? But from my perspective, that's where I say, well, I don't want to use the drug anyway. I want to work on, you know, balancing your hormones from a natural perspective. And if I can take off that 10 or 20% of the cells that are hormone sensitive, then I'm definitely going to try to go and do that, right? Yeah. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, like it's one of the factors, but it's not the primary driving force necessarily, like it would be in like a, you know, a breast cancer scenario. Yeah, exactly. And But that's probably why we have the other cancers where breast cancer and colon cancer and those guys do kind of go along with each other. They happen all the time. Do you know if there's any association with conditions like PCOS or endometriosis or other like quote unquote hormonal conditions with colon cancer? So definitely endometriosis we know. Um, I don't know about PCOS. I haven't seen any research on that. And that might be because this PCOS is more so on the androgen and progesterone side of disorders, right? Where endometriosis is more the estrogen side and it tends to be the estrogen aspect of things that are, you know, more linked, but certainly people um, with, you know, really, really bad periods or big histories of using birth control for 40 years and things like that is, you know, those sort of estrogen exposures we do know, again, is a big risk. Everyone's drinking water, BPA, you know, BPA and plastics are estrogen mimickers. We do know that there's a risk there with BPA. So, there's a lot. And that's the thing is anytime we're talking about, again, the third most common cancer in the US, there's tons and tons and tons of research on it. I think I'm curious too. I know we talked a decent amount about prevention. I'm curious if there's, and I'm not sure of this, if there's initial signs, like maybe you don't have a risk and maybe you have never been screened or something. Is there any like early signs or symptoms to look out for to go like get a colonoscopy or request it um, yeah. that you see in your colon cancer patients? Certainly there's, there's personal signs that, you know, patients can notice. And there are also early signs that could like show up in lab work. And sometimes that happens with my colon cancer patients is I'll, I'll be reviewing their file and I'll look at their labs from a physical three years ago. And I'm like, eh. yeah. <laughs> this was, this yeah. was really showing up back then. It's just, you know, no one was really paying attention and noticed it. Right. So from the patient's perspective, um, definitely, you know, the most common sign is always going to be rectal bleeding, right? Um, and that's a tricky scenario because with females, sometimes they're like, well, I'm just spotting, you know, oh, I'm just, you know, getting some blood from a menstrual cycle. And I don't know, I just saw it on the paper because it's not like a ton of blood is gushing out, right? Um, so we need to make sure that any bleeding has an explanation, but then the other part of it is going to be, um, uh, Hemorrhoids, right? Is lots of people have hemorrhoids, right? Is whether they're constipated and they have hemorrhoids because they're constipated or they have other bowel issues. Or again, a lots of females have hemorrhoids after pregnancy and they're just like, well, this is part of being a mom life and I'm always going to have hemorrhoids, blah, blah, blah. So people get used to seeing blood down there, but blood is going to be one of our, our major, major factors. Um, the colon, you know, the shape of the colon, it starts on the right side, goes over and goes down on the left side. There is a high um, difference between the side of colon cancer that occurs, right? The vast majority of colon cancer is going to be found left-sided colorectal cancer. Um, and typically, so vast majority, 62%, you know, the most colon cancer is left-sided. And if it's on the left side, that means, you know, you're only a couple inches away from coming out of you from your rectum, meaning... If you are bleeding from that area, it's still going to be a really, really bright red blood by the time it comes yeah. out, right? Where if we are talking about those right-sided colorectal cancers, which again is you know the other 38%, um, oftentimes by the time the blood comes out of you, it's not red anymore. And that becomes hard because it gets, it's harder for people to see. So um, from the patient's perspective, if they have blood, we're thinking, oh, you know, left side colorectal cancer, we need to screen them. 
on the right side, if they're not seeing it, well, then what can we do about it? That's where we need to just, again, look at people's regular old CBCs, their regular old blood counts, and just saying, like, are you anemic for no good reason? You know, like, are you a male that has anemia, right? Because males shouldn't just <laughs> develop anemia out of nowhere. They shouldn't be losing blood out of nowhere, right? Yep. Or are you a female that you've never been anemic and, you know, for 30 years, say, and everything's always been fine and your menstrual period hasn't changed, but then suddenly you have a big drop off and you suddenly are anemic, right? It's like, that's where is the other most common place that people lose blood is in their GI tract. So we need to make sure that it's not, you know, colon cancer, of course. Um, and there are simple little tests. They're called, uh, Guayac tests is like the brand name of them, but they're called uh, fecal occult blood tests where literally it's just a little card and your doctor can give them to you. They cost $2. You smear some poop on the thing and squirt a little bit of liquid on it. If it turns blue, it finds hidden blood, right? Mm -hmm. So that's one of those, you know, $1, $2 screening tests that I will often give my patients all the time and just say like, yeah, I know you don't want to get a colonoscopy, but hey, just poop on this little $1 card and let's get a good idea right now. And if it's positive, then we will certainly go and do further evaluation, right? Yeah. So blood is going to definitely be our major factor. Um, anemia, if you're not seeing the blood, but showing up in the blood work is going to be a major factor. And the reality is, is that there is something called um, a, a tumor. You know, there are tumor markers. Tumor markers are blood tests that are associated with different cancers, right? Some oncologists love tumor markers. I love tumor markers. I run them on everyone all the time. Um, some oncologists absolutely hate tumor markers, right? And literally there's some hospital systems where like no one in the hospital is allowed to run them. And then you go two miles down the road to a different hospital and every single oncologist runs them, right? Um, but there's a tumor marker called a CEA, carcinoembryonic antigen, that is very, very, very highly linked to colon cancer. Um, it's not you know, insurance for the most part covers it, but even if they don't cover it, you know, we're talking like a $30 test. This is not crazy expensive functional medicine testing, right? But a CEA, um, it has a high association with colon cancer. The reason some oncologists don't like it is that it's not, uh, it's not a perfect test. Um, and really no tumor markers are, right? There's also tumor markers for breast cancer and ovarian cancer and things like that. And none of them are perfect, which I mean, I mean, even colonoscopies and imaging and CT scans and, you know, none of that is yeah. perfect as well. What test right? is perfect? Exactly. Right. None of them are perfect. Um, but with CEAs, uh, some things can, we know, screw them up. So if you're a smoker, you can have an elevated CEA, right? Just even have no cancer at all. So even on the reference range from like Quest or LabCorp, they will say like, well, this is normal. And if you're a smoker, like, oh, we'll give you a little bit of a different reference range. Yeah. So smoking can raise it up as well as, like I said, is some other cancers, actually like breast cancer and lung cancer also sometimes make your body produce that CEA enzyme. So People can do the test and freak out, oh my God, I have colon cancer, and they go and do a colonoscopy and they're like, oh, just kidding, nothing there. But maybe it's because they actually had a breast cancer that, again, no one was focusing on because everyone was looking at the colon. So yeah. I use them in kind of routine screening tests, but it, it's not a definitive diagnosis, right? It, it, it's, again, it's a $30 lab test, which is great for people that are at high risk and they want to do a blood test every six months to check. Fine, you know, it's 30 bucks. It's not a big deal, right? But it's not perfect. Well, at the bare minimum, it sounds like it could tip you off to the presence of cancer reasonably yeah. well. And then, yeah. again, as long as you know that there might be other types of cancer that are getting pulled in, like lung and breast cancer, then you know to kind of have your wits about you and yeah. not completely rely on the colonoscopy and then go, oh, okay, I'm cancer-free. Cool. On exactly. with my life. Like, you know, and to do a little bit more hunting then. And it's exactly like we... 
people use other tumor markers like a PSA, you know, PSA for prostate is that's the diagnostic criteria for prostate cancer, right? Is that's what every doctor uses. It's, it's the same thing. But if you ask anyone that knows about a PSA, a PSA is far from a perfect test. There's all kinds of things that can screw it up and, you know, make it elevated, right? But it's what we use because it's what we got, right? Yeah. And that's the thing is I think with colon cancer, they're like, well, colonoscopy is the gold standard. So let's just throw everyone to get a colonoscopy. And again, is there's just some people that just, I can talk to them for five hours that they need to get a colonoscopy and they're just never going to do it. So we need to acknowledge those people and say like, well, we're going to do the best we can then to screen otherwise. Yeah, it definitely does. I think that sometimes, too, some of the, like, screening tools, and again, I I think that if you're at risk, you should definitely get colonoscopies, but I think, like, sometimes probably the conventional space overuses colonoscopies because they're making more money on colonoscopies, too, which is more of, like, a... uh, I don't know. I feel like sometimes when I have a client where they're immediately jumping to the colonoscopy where they could do a little bit of analysis prior to that, it might make sense to screen if they're not wanting to do one. So I, I like that there's a couple different options that you're providing. Um, you have to because, like I said, is on, honestly, is almost all colon cancer in this country, I forget the actual number, but something like 85% of colon cancer is in people above 50, right? Yeah. So a lot yeah. of times people just, you know, throw it away and say, well, you're not 50, you're, you're, you're not the patient right. population. It's like, well, what right. about that other 15%, right? Is we don't want to put them through a colonoscopy every year, but, you know, if they could just do a regular old routine blood test with their annual physical, why right. not? Right, right. Well, to your earlier point, if you catch it early, then you have a pretty high success rate and a good likelihood that you'll be alive five years from now or 10 years from now. Yeah, definitely. For sure. Yeah. Do we want to talk about what conventional treatment does look like? So if we do get a diagnosis and... I was just going to say, yeah, yeah, that's the perfect segue. Like, say, say somebody walks into your office today and they say, I just got diagnosed with colon cancer I don't know what I'm going to do yet. I don't know if I'm going to go conventional, completely natural, or somewhere halfway between. Like, what are some of the things that you're starting to think of with that patient who just got a new diagnosis of colon cancer? I always am going to pull up some survival rates calculators with them and go through some of these different numbers. And it's not to scare people or things like that. It's just honestly to show them if I go and put all their information into these calculators that exist and it shows them like, hey, if you just listen to everything your doctor says you're going to do, you have a 95% chance of surviving this. It's like, why wouldn't you take that, right? Where if we put it all into the calculator and it says you have a 4% chance of surviving this, then I certainly understand you, you know, maybe not wanting to do what they have to say or, you know, looking for other options in those sort of scenarios, right? So that's a lot of what I do is oftentimes is I'm there to talk people into like really your best bet is going with some of these things that your oncologist recommends because something like surgery is, especially when we're talking about early stages, it can be a hundred percent curative. Like you can just go get it cut out and then you're over and done. And you know, this happens with me and the medical doctor that I partner with and our nurse practitioner and everyone. It's always weird to us, but sometimes we get patients where like they are totally terrified of surgery. They could never, you know, get past the idea of surgery. Um, they would do anything before surgery. And for us, it's always like in oncology, it's like, if your case is surgical, like, oh my God, run and take it. If they can go and cut it out and then you're over and done with this, like just, just get this over and done within a day, right? Because if you wait and you delay and that, then it goes everywhere throughout your body, surgery is not an option anymore. And then you're stuck with chemo and radiation in those sort of scenarios, right? 
So again, catching it early, surgical can be curative. Um, and again, if it is early, you don't need a colostomy bag or anything, meaning you get to have your regular bowel movements and everything's virtually normal. Um, starting to get into some of the, you know, at later stage one and stage twos, surgery is still often can be curative, but they will do, they will give you a temporary colostomy bag, but it's almost always reversible. Like 80% of the time it's reversible, meaning sometimes even within 30 days or 60 days, you get to get rid of the colostomy bag. And that's the one thing that patients are always scared of is they don't want to be stuck with a bag the rest of their life, right? Where the large majority of the time they certainly don't have to. Okay. Um, if it does get past those stages, if it starts to get into lymph nodes in those sort of scenarios, that's when we look at more systemic treatments. Um, if it is, you know, again, getting into stage two, starting to get a little bit advanced, those sort of scenarios, um, they're going to want to start adding in radiation to this scenario. So uh, radiation is going to, with the colon cancer, starts to dive deeper into the walls of the cancer and then start to get into the lymph node in the vessels. That's the thing with the bowels, as the bowels have tons of arteries and veins and lymph nodes around them because that's where we absorb our nutrition from, right? So our bowels are just full of all of these vessels. Um, so if it starts to get into there, that's where they're going to try to do local radiation to kind of, you know, kill off anything potentially in the area. Um, if it starts to get into stage three and stage fours, you know, stage four, meaning it's traveled to other places in the body, that's when the numbers are going to start to plummet in terms of success rates, because you can't go just shooting radiation everywhere throughout the body. You know, you have to do systemic treatments, and that's when chemotherapy comes in. And unfortunately, for colorectal cancer, chemotherapy does not... Um, it's one of the things that chemo doesn't work very well for. Um, it only has about a 20% success rate in colorectal cancer. And usually, you know, I'm sure many of your listeners are going to say, oh, I would never do chemo, things like that. Um, I'm oftentimes the patient that tells people all the time that like chemo is great at killing cancer. It's just not good at keeping you alive at the same time. And it's not good at stopping cancer from coming back later on. Right. But mm-hmm. reality is it is really good at what it does. Right. So that's what I do is people come in and get their chemo and then I'm there to build their body up and keep them safe and keep them alive yeah. at the same time. But for colorectal cancer, that's one of the unfortunate scenarios is that it only has about a 20% success rate. So it doesn't work all that well. Um, and Unfortunately, is you have someone that has a GI cancer and the number one, you know, side effect of the chemo, the main chemo that they use, which is 5-FU, um, is just it destroys the lining of your GI tract and people are nauseous like crazy and vomiting like crazy and diarrhea like crazy. So there's lots of GI side effects for someone that already has a GI disorder and oftentimes they're not very happy with it. So um, that's why I'm part of the clinic that I am. So I, you know, I have the Nourish office that we talked about earlier, but I'm also part of an integrative medical clinic where people fly in from all over the world. And that's what we do is we do a type of chemotherapy called insulin potentiated chemotherapy. Um, it's a way to do chemotherapy with drastically lower side effects. It's, it's not side effect free chemo. And I'll tell you, there was a doctor in Toronto calling it side effect free chemo and the government came and shut him down, not because he was doing it, but just because he was marketing it as side effect free yeah. chemo. And I tell people it's not side effect free chemo. It's a way for us to take advantage of biochemistry to use chemotherapy more effectively at lower dosages and if there's lower dosages there's not as many side effects so yeah uh we're the we're the oldest ipt clinic in the united states so people literally fly in from all over the world to come to us for our protocols because we're kind of the ones that developed most of the protocols um there is about 30 ipt clinics across the united states and it's widely used throughout europe so that's what i say is when we're talking about chemo you know it it often doesn't work that well and that's often because the patients can't 
get past the side effects to the point where they even complete their their rec- their recommended dosages, right? They don't complete the recommended sessions. They stop before before they even get to the eight sessions their oncologist recommended because they say, oh, you know, I can't take it anymore, right? So yeah. that's what we do is we, we use it in a way that we can get less side effects, meaning people can actually complete their treatment plans, right? That's the thing with colorectal cancer and really a lot of different cancers that are out there, pancreatic cancer, same thing, is that uh, the reason some of the numbers aren't good is because nobody actually <laughs> is able to get their full treatments, right? Mm. If they can't get their treatment, of course people aren't going to make it, right? So yep. I do yep. everything I can to make sure that we can make sure that they get the treatment plan so people can make it. It makes sense. It only works if you put it in your body, right? Like it's only effective if you do it. Uh, but you actually reminded me of something. I know that this came up years ago on a thread that we were both on, I think, and I'm really curious to get your take on it. You had mentioned that a lot of these drugs will just destroy the GI lining. And that brings to mind, well, would you try to heal the leaky gut? Would you try to heal the gut with things like L-glutamine? What, what is your thought process on that? Because I know there was some discussion at some point a few years back that glutamine might fuel certain types of cancers and you might not want to use it in high, high doses with cancer patients. Can you give me a little bit more context for that? Because that's about the limit of my memory on that topic. It's it's an incredibly difficult topic. And really, I'm going to, you know, that's a leeway into this, like, cancer is hard. And, you know, there's a million alternative medicine out practitioners out there that try to, you know, help people with cancer and things like that, because they know a lot about functional medicine. And the tricky part about cancer is that when you're doing this functional medicine stuff that is supporting the patient's body and building them up, what also happens is oftentimes you can strengthen the cancer because that's what cancer is, is. It's your own cells, right? So there's a million interactions. There's a million interactions with the chemotherapy. There's a million things that you would you, know, you would think would be really good for your body that are also strengthening the cancer. Glutamine is like the, you know, you know it's the one that the oncologists are going to yell at patients about and things like that because cancer likes sugar. You know, cancer is its main fuel source is definitely going to be sugar. Cancer cells have on average about 20 times more insulin receptors than normal cells do. So they are going to for sure use glycolysis, which is that pathway that likes to just use sugar to make energy go, 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 you know, really, really quickly and make ATP, but it's not an efficient source. The tricky part is that if that was, if it was as simple as that, right, we could just put everyone on a keto diet and hey, we'd cure cancer. And that's not the case because cancer, if you do restrict the sugar 100%, what will happen is it will start taking glutamine out of your muscles and turning your muscles into sugar. Your body has a pathway, your liver can turn glutamine into sugar, and then it creates its own sugar. And then what happens is the patient gets muscle wasting. They start degrading all their muscles because their body is eating it to in order to create sugar out of it, right? So oncologists know that oncologists, you know, muscle wasting is a big thing that we worry about in oncology. So they know that it's that glutamine pathway that's getting stimulated. So they're always going to say absolutely no glutamine. The reality is, is cancer will only go down that glutamine pathway if it is forced to, if it is 100% restricted of the sugar that it wants to use for fuel. Okay. So I, you do use glutamine in my patients, right? Specifically, targeted dosages and and while we are doing treatments like if the patient's going through chemo radiation or something like that i will use glutamine but if it's like no you know i'm just going to try to you know wait around for two years and I'll, I'll see what happens and maybe consider surgery down the road or something like that that's not someone that should be on glutamine every day because then you're just you know you're, you're adding too much fuel to the fire but the reality is, is it's we don't have any studies that say glutamine supplementation makes it worse um, it's a theoretical thing 
Uh, and honestly, for the most part, most naturopathic oncologists will use glutamine during active treatment to support the patient. The reality is, you know, how do you dose glutamine? You know, five grams, you know, two, three times a day, something like that, is your body has 150 grams of glutamine just floating around in the bloodstream at all times as part of our, you know, glutamine is our number one amino acid just in our amino acid pool floating around in our blood. So adding another five grams to that already 150 that the cancer has access to is not making a world of difference in terms of growth. That makes sense. And I like that you put it in context of like the active treatment and having it be part of the protocol versus honestly, so many people, myself included, I mean, let's get real. So many of us are just like on some supplements because like, hey, this will be good. This will be part of my like general wellness kind of regimen. And if you have cancer and you're not currently undergoing chemotherapy, then maybe you don't want to be loading up with tons of glutamine just because, right? Or because, you know, some Instagram person or whoever told you to do it. Yeah, that's definitely in, you know, I, I put a little notion of this earlier where we talked about folate is one of those things that we have a really good association with. We know eating a folate-rich diet is good for prevention. Um, and that's one of those things is, as you guys know, you know, the whole Instagram just likes to blow up about MTHFR. Everyone needs to load up on methylated folate and, and methylated B12, right? Um and people don't realize that the reality is most of those people that have those mutations, they don't need a bunch of methylated vitamins. They just need to eat some spinach every once in a while, right? Um, and they need to avoid synthetic folic acids, but they don't need a lot of these supplements is, you know, have 200,000 times your daily value of B12, methyl B12, right? And that's also 200,000 times your daily value of all these methyl donors, right? And that's every single day over and over and over and over again, right? And that's... in. I'm not naming any names, but I definitely have patients out there where like they had, you know, a little breast lump or a little thing in their colon, something like that. And then, you know, they're like, oh, I'm going to try to get healthy. I'm going to go see a functional medicine doctor. The functional medicine doctor says, oh my God, you have MTHFR. You need to take all this methyl B12 and methylfolate. And then a month later, they get a new mammogram or a new colonoscopy and the cancer's exploded, right? Because methyl donors are on signals, right? As you take a lot of Americans that are overweight and fatigued and depressed and you give them a whole bunch of on signals and suddenly they feel good right but what is cancer cancer is these cells that that's all they know how to do is turn on they don't know how to turn off that's the problem and giving hundreds of thousands of on signals over and over every single day is oftentimes very very bad so that's where the nuances of oncology often come in like folate great folate from food great Two hundred thousand times your daily value of methylfolate or methyl b12 not a good idea I feel so validated right now. I just have to thank you for this fuzzy feeling I have because we did a few episodes a while back on different nutrients. We kind of highlighted all the different vitamins and minerals and we had a whole episode on the B12, B12 and folate and methylation. And that was one of my points is that, you know, you can take like a multi that has around a hundred percent of your daily value. If you want to have that here or there as an insurance policy on the days that you eat more cookies, fine, that's great. But like, don't, don't get, I, I've seen patients where like they're on a methylated multivitamin and extra folate on top of that and extra B12 drops. And, and it's like, you don't need that much extra folate. You're going to be turning on genes and turning off genes in weird, wacky ways. And you're going to be, to your point, putting a lot more on signals out there. And if that means you're turning on cancer genes, or cancer cells more and allowing them to grow more, then that could be really, really bad and potentially carcinogenic. So um, 
if you guys have not listened to that episode, I don't remember the number. You'll have to scroll through and find it on your own. But there's one episode somewhere about B vitamins. Go listen. Yeah. And that's, you know, patients come into me usually after they've already been in a bunch of other practitioners' office and they've already had four oncology consults and things like that. And, you know, people bring in wheelbarrows of supplements. And I know, you know, you guys experience that too. And like I had that in internal medicine, but literally in, in cancers, every single patient is a wheelbarrow of supplements, right? And they just line it all up on my desk and I say, I'm taking all of this stuff to fight back against my cancer. And I look at it and I'm like, I've actually calculated. I had one patient that had like 2 million times their daily value of methylated B12 because they had in like 15 different supplements they were taking, right? Um, so like, there's that problem, but then there's also the, you're taking a wheelbarrow of supplements, like things interact with each other. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> half of the stuff you're taking is being canceled out by the other half of the stuff you're taking. And you're just, you're flushing stuff down the toilet. And that's just talking about your protocol. Then we start to throw in your, you know, oncology medications and things like that, and your chemos on top of it. And a bunch of those have a bunch of interactions. And that's the large majority of what I realistically do all day long is I tell people to, oh my God, please stop taking all of this different stuff. Again, colorectal cancer, we have so much evidence for. It's like, use the stuff that we have great evidence for that we have 20 clinical trials that say hey this you know this one nutrient is good for colorectal cancer don't go out on you know on the internet this one person cured their cancer with this random thing on there so i'm going to latch on to that it's like why go to the crazy stuff when you haven't even used the stuff that we know works right yeah yeah it happens happens every day every patient every day what we do well but the internet is rife with information And, you know, the irony of this is that I'm telling you this on our podcast, right? So (laughs) there are podcasts and health summits and downloadable PDFs and Instagram feeds and TikTokers and YouTubers. And like, I say that as somebody who's on YouTube and I have a podcast, but oh my God, there's so much information out there that, you know, I, I see this a lot too with the IBS space is that people will put together this hodgepodge plan because they're so desperate to feel better. And it ends up being that they're on you know, 25 different supplements and not making a lot of progress and they're just wasting their money on these supplements that are not really helping them when they could be going back to some foundational, less glamorous, less sexy stuff like eat some spinach and, you know, the proprietary blended supplement of the whatever that cured the one dude's cancer is so much more glamorous and so much more promising in some way versus just eating spinach and moving your body and and doing the foundational things. And oftentimes people forget that cancer is realistically like hundreds of different diseases, right? And that's what I tell every single one of my patients. Like anytime you hear about something that's good for cancer, right? One, you always want to look at, are they claiming to cure all cancers and things like that? Because there's definitely that on the internet, right? And again, it's like if we had the answer for curing all cancer, like this would be over and done with. And it's not like big pharma suppressing them. It's like, well, you know, it's, you know, this would have gotten out there, right? (laughs) We would know. Um But the second part is that when you read about something that's good for cancer, you always have to ask yourself, is this good for my cancer, right? Because just because something is great for someone's brain cancer does not mean it's going to help your colorectal cancer. And that's one of those things. There's there's something called Rick Simpson oil, if you're familiar with that. I don't know. It's Mm -hmm. RSO oil. So it's it's a fancy cannabis, you know, fancy CBD oil, basically really expensive CBD oil. Um, Rick Simpson was this guy in Canada that cured his basal cell carcinoma with his Rick Simpson oil. Basal cell carcinoma is a skin cancer that 99.5% of people survive because it's basically a mole that you cut off and everything's fine, right? So it's not so amazing that he cured his basal cell carcinoma with that. But then I get people with, 
you know, pancreatic cancer that has a 95% mortality rate that, you know, almost nobody survives saying, oh my God, this Rick Simpson oil is going to cure me, right? Yeah. Um, and I have tons of colorectal patients where that's the popular thing right now is, you know, putting Rick Simpson oil up their butt to that's going to fix their colorectal oh, cancer. And like, that's just, it's, it's not how it works. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, and that probably goes for nutrition too, to go back to an earlier point, like the keto diet is going to be helpful for some types of cancers, like brain cancer in particular is my understanding, but yeah. it's going to be less helpful for other types of cancer. And considering that, you know, and I'll put the caveat, we've talked about this a little bit. I think that there's a better way and a worse way to do keto. And a lot of people, you know, 90 plus percent of people who are doing keto, quote unquote, are not doing it the correct way. Like they're just overdoing it on the fat bombs and the cheese and the dairy and the whatever. And they're not getting the fiber and the plant foods that they should be. So then what ends up being proposed as this health promoting diet, the, the, the common variation of keto is actually high fat, low fiber, and then that's not so good for colorectal cancer. So the exact things that we said, are, you know, are the things we want to do to try to prevent cancer. Yeah. So it it happens all the time. Yeah. Well, and I I also think too. I mean, I think again, asking is it helpful for your cancer, but also with things like dietary interventions or any sort of supplements. Like, you could still have things just that just don't work for you as an individual, like as an N yeah. equals one experiment. And I think that that's always really important to clue in on because some people put all their hopes on keto or all their hopes on this supplement. And again, sometimes their high hopes blind them in a way that they're not seeing that, oh, this thing is negatively affecting how you're feeling or negatively affecting your lab work. Um yeah. And there's a lot of signs that things aren't going well with it, but because there's like a strong belief in the the possibility that this would have a major effect, they stick with it too long. I mean, we see that a lot with the IBS space with certain diets, like restrictive diets. But I think, again, it's always important to recognize that you're still like an N equals one. So even if there's something that generally is helpful um, for people with colon cancer or anything if if it's not working or it's not affecting labs or it's negatively affecting you like stop taking it or discuss it with the provider um there's always individual factors that play into how someone's gonna respond to certain things i i unfortunately have you know people's beliefs kill them all the time and Mm -hmm. i say that because again with colorectal cancer there's a giant association with food and people know that even the lay person knows that. And unfortunately people get latched on to these ideas about, you know, if Gerson diet, you know, so Gerson diet is probably the most common alternative medicine diet for cancer there is out there, but it's especially prevalent in colorectal cancer because you're drinking all these healthy juices and then you're doing coffee enemas, which is going right to your colon. So all it's like almost every one of my colorectal cancer patients comes in thinking that I'm going to prescribe Gerson to them or they've already started Gerson diet and things like that. Um, for those of you that don't know, Gerson is 13 juices per day. And by the way, it has to be out of a $5,000 Norwalk juicer because they say if it doesn't, then it has too much fiber and you get bloated and you can't, you wouldn't be able to drink 13 juices per day out of a normal juicer. Um, five coffee enemas per day, no animal protein, no salt for two years. And every single one of those coffee enemas and every single one of those, uh, juices has to be made fresh, right? And it's like, well, it takes an hour to make juice and do the coffee enemas and everything like that is it becomes a full-time job again for two years. 
And if you go back and read the research on Gerson, people don't realize that when he was doing his thing back in the 50s and the government went and studied his research in the 60s and 70s, the NIH actually concluded that this could be a viable treatment for cancer. But and the conclusion of the study literally reads, but it's not recommended because it's not doable. And I 100% agree. It's like, like I said, it's 13 juices and five coffee enemas every single day and no other food for two years. And at the end of the two years, your cancer might be better. It's like, you know, that is life consuming, right? It's most people can't do that. Where, like I said, is if you could just go in surgery and get it cut out in an hour and be over and done with this, it's like, you know, why wouldn't you take that, right? Um, but I have patients all the time that, you know, they do some radiation, it's shrunk down, and they're like, oh, well, now I have time. I'm going to do Gerson for six months because I know it's going to work for me. And then they come back six months later and it's taken over their whole body, right? Um, and it's because most of the time people don't do Gerson properly or really a lot of times they don't do various diets properly, right? Is people do one coffee enema per week or they're, oh, I'll have one, you know, apple carrot juice every morning. And it's like, well, when you take 2% of the protocol and implement it into your life, well, you're probably going to get 2% of the results, right? Yeah. Well, even if they did it to full bore, what are they sacrificing by spending so much time and energy on that? Are they able to like do the things they enjoy or be around people that they love? If yeah. They're so all consumed in the treatment. Usually not. And that's where people right. say, well, I'll, I'll go down to Gerson Clinic in Mexico. There's a, you know, a clinic in Tijuana that that's where you can go and do. And you know, it's $30,000 for three weeks of treatment. And it's like everyone that goes down there feels amazing after three weeks of treatments. Trust me, because you're, you know, people are making you this perfect food all day long. But then you come home, right? And then you come home and it's what happens after those three weeks and it, it, it falls apart. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there's got to be a balance of like risk benefit ratio and like how practical and how appealing is it to do something potentially for the rest of your life or for the long haul, because you're right. Like you can kind of, um, you know, honestly, it's kind of analogous to what we give conventional medicine shit for in a way. Like we give conventional doctors crap all the time about band-aiding symptoms and looking for quick fixes. Well, I don't know. Is three weeks in Tijuana at the Gerson clinic really that much different? You're kind of band-aiding stuff, getting some quick fixes, and then you're going back to your normal everyday life. And that three weeks in Mexico didn't tell you jack shit about how to cook, how to eat healthy, how to actually take care of your body. You just had a really weird three-week vacation. Yeah. So With you go back to your this. normal life and you're stressed and you're getting crappy sleep and you have terrible relationships and crappy diet and you're eating out and it all kind of comes back. So, you know, it's natural, but is it that much different than what we criticize conventional medicine for all day, every day? I'd say no. Yeah, I agree. Oh my goodness. Well, there is a lot to chew on. Food pun completely intended, by the way. Uh, but I want to be respectful of your time. I know you've got patients that are going to be coming to see you momentarily, and you probably will need a pee break after this. So I want to wrap up here and say thank you, thank you, thank you for coming on the podcast. It was such a pleasure. I learned a lot. I'm sure everybody else did too. Um, yeah, it was just really wonderful. And I will try to think of a reason to have you back on in the future so I can pick your brain further. But this one really came to mind, especially with Colon Cancer Awareness Month. And I'm just so grateful that you came on. So thank you, Michael. Uh, Guys, again, if you want to go creep on him or become a patient and work with him, the website again is nourishhealthcare.org. And you can find him on Instagram at nourishhealthcare. Thank you. Thank you. It was wonderful. Thanks, guys. I appreciate you having me.